0: Nordic Food Lab Radio. So. Yeah, so.
1: What do you want to talk about?
0: Well, um, I guess I'm just wanting to maybe coordinate with you some of the fermenting trials. Roberto Flores, our head chef at the lab. And he and I are in the kitchen, hashing out some ideas for a dish. Did you have selected uh, any type of product that you
1: like to ferment in specific? Or?
0: Well, I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to try um, like really cellulose-heavy plants. But I also do want to try lichen, mm-hmm. because that's one of the main forages of the reindeer. Okay. Or not really a dish, but a technique. A novel fermentation technique, to be exact, that would aim to mimic the fermentation chamber called the rumen inside a class of animals called ruminants. We wanted to make something that we had only heard mentioned in harrowing survival tales, this thing called green soup. Because they generally
1: butcher the the animal, Uh, I mean, it's really difficult to handle something like this, but actually it's really, really easy to get uh, rotten.
0: Green soup is the bacteria, protozoa, yeast, and fungi-rich food slurry inside an animal's rumen, the second of four stomach chambers that enables these animals, like cow, deer, and even giraffes, to digest kilograms of plant matter at a time. The name is pretty self-explanatory. When the rumen of a slaughtered animal is opened up, inside is this hot, spicy-smelling and juicy green liquid composed of all the vascular plants, mosses, lichens, and whatever else the animal has been eating. These rumen contents are known to be consumed for immediate nutrition in urgent moments by many, as my Sami teacher Lila, whom you know very well from the rest of this season, emphasized to me as she spoke specifically about the reindeer rumen.
2: You know, it was not so common, but it was so different from family to family what you eat and take care of the old traditions because it was a lot of nutrition in reindeer stomach and in the growth coming against stomach. You know reindeer have four stomach like right. cows. They go to the first, second, third and the fourth coming out. Yeah. But what we done was we take from one of the stomach uh, the the food they have eaten yeah. and give to the reindeer who not could eat and swallow and they mm. have lost the bacteria in the stomach. So when we sloped it we take care of that and so we could uh, mix with a little bit water and so we give the reindeer. Mm-hmm. So when that come in the stomach, the stomach started to produce that bacteria and the reindeer got a new life and could started to eat it again. Talk about a probiotic. Yes, but what you could do it, I, I taste, uh, tries tried many times to so take from one of the stomachs uh, the green one, it don't taste very bad, but you must take directly when you open and put in the freezer. And many people in the old days, not all days, only for under the second war, they eat that was inside of the intest because they got all the vitamin and the, the minerals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, it was very
0: healthy. So its health potential was definitely one thing that interested us. Fermentation has been growing massively in popularity in Europe and North America as we remember and realize the importance of our microbiome, not only to our health, but to our very existence. But there's something else about the green soup that entranced both Roberto and me, convergently even. I thought it up after hearing Lila's stories and Roberto got inspired after an experience slaughtering a goat. That's
1: nice, actually, that we had this uh, same idea, you know, It's like, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. When I, when I kill that goat, actually, and I smell the rumen, Mm -hmm. I say that's something that we definitely need to do with, you know, Mm. it was like, it was clear that was the goat.
0: Yeah. What fascinated us was this potential to make edible things that otherwise we could not. High cellulose plants, for instance, things that the ruminants and microbes have co-evolved with each other over millions of years to be able to digest. For me, the wonder of the four-chambered stomach is rooted in the microbiome of the rumen and how it transforms the huge amount of biomass indigestible to humans into milk, meat, blood, and bone. Okay, so the cow is introduced to some feed stuff. This is Nuna Capion. She is an associate professor of veterinary medicine in the Department of Large Animal Sciences at the University of Copenhagen. I visited her to find out the finer details behind this remarkable transformation. She used cows as an example, but said that the rumen mechanism is nearly the exact same among all ruminants.
3: She chews it once and it goes down into uh, the first uh, stomach here. And, um, and from, uh, from there she has to chew it a couple of times until the particles are so small that they can flow into Mm. the big fermentation chamber that's in the rumen. And uh, in the rumen we have in the the bottom layer is is liquid with a lot of protozoa and a lot of bacteria that degrades all these small uh, particles. The bacteria, uh, some of them uh, pr- produce enzymes and some of them act like enzymes, the way they they uh, attack all these little feed stuff. Okay, okay. So they all have different, you know, there's a group that p- degrades the carbohydrates and a group that degrades the, uh, the lipids and uh, the fat and there's a group that uh, attacks the proteins. Okay. So that's the main, you know, and uh, some of them do both. Uh, and uh, they also produce these Volatile fatty acids. They produce the methane, and they produce the carbon dioxide, and they produce uh, some kind of uh, nitric oxide also. So the environment in here is, is unfriendly to most bacteria, but uh, but of course the bacteria that uh, survives in here are the ones that do the job. The
0: so the rumen contracts frequently, mixing up this slurry of microbes and fermenting feedstuff so that all of the protozoa, bacteria, fungi and yeast have a chance to get fed, all the while breaking the matter down into absorbable foodstuff for the cow itself.
3: And, uh, and from there the ingesta flows mm-hmm. into the uh, abomasum that's similar to, to our stomach. It has the acids and has all these other ways uh, enzymes to degrade mm. the rest.
0: It is no hyperbole to say that rumen fermentation has deeply shaped human civilizations, and the idea to try to collaborate more directly with this process was exciting. But we first wanted to understand how the rumen contents had been used as a food by people with close uh, relationships to the ruminants.
1: If in, in which uh, circumstance is uh, consumed? If it's cooked, is not cooked. It's, it's whatever, like yeah. all the mass, um, all the information related to how it's used. Mm. And,
0: uh... Lila points out that, at least when it comes to the sami and the reindeer, eating the rumen contents has been a definite last choice, kind of like a famine food or survival food. So is this what Roberto and I were trying to replicate, a survival food? What even is a survival food? I admit in retrospect I didn't even have a good sense of why I was using this as a category.
1: What actually make a food survival in the sense of what's different than just food at this mm-hmm. point? You mm-hmm. know, we see survival because for us it's the idea of eating something that we can eat only if we don't have anything to eat. So it's like a kind of we can choose to eat that food because we need to survive, right? Know? Right. But With uh, choice. yeah, but to so many culture, that food could be also just food, you know. And this is a kind of really different uh, point of view.
0: Was the green soup a food, plain and simple, albeit one that is eaten only in the most urgent circumstances, or was it something categorically different? I did some research to see what literature I could find on green soup, or some version of it, being used regularly in a food tradition, but came up with little more than references to it as a last-minute reindeer-herding and caribou-hunting food. The only other person we could find, besides Lila, who had actually eaten the stuff personally, was our hunter friend Jesper Schuda. Now a jovial middle-aged man with silver hair, Jesper experienced the soup when he was a burly 20-year-old hunting student with a great mustache. He had been invited to Denmark's first big hunting trade show of sorts, and part of it was a competition for hunters, where they had to go down this line and answer trivia questions and shoot some targets.
4: And I was a professional hunter student, so, so of course I could answer every question, so I won this competition.
0: So after he wins, this guy comes up to him, who turned out to be from a hunting guide company.
4: Well, he came to me and he asked me, I need two men for Greenland. And uh, we're leaving in three weeks, and you're supposed to be there in two weeks for hunting, and you are supposed to help our hunters with getting the game. Well, I've never been to Greenland before, I tell you. But uh, what's the condition? Well, you're free of charge. It doesn't cost you anything. We pay everything for you. Everything. Okay, it's okay.
0: This sounded like a pretty good deal to young Jesper, so he agreed and they set off to Greenland in early September. Around the 10th day of the expedition, he was leading one of the customers and a couple other hunters on an overnight trip into the bush, looking for big game, but they ran into a problem. Jesper has what he calls a stomach compass.
4: I I can feel wherever I am from always nowhere. So
0: they were not lost in this remote bush, as you might expect, but they did run out of food waking up in the morning famished from their long hike and with only a few pieces of rye bread to last them the day.
4: And I told him, well, we have to shoot a hare or something to eat uh, on the way because we need some food. Uh, and we took off and, and uh, went along to, uh,
0: towards the... Uh, the intention was to find something small to eat first, but both luckily and unluckily, opportunity struck. Suddenly there were three bucks,
4: really a buck. Just standing in front of us, 50, 100 meters from us. My customer shot uh, one big buck, and the other ran away. And uh, I was not supposed to shoot because uh, they are the paying guests. So, so they're supposed to shoot.
0: So Jesper immediately pulled out his knife and started field dressing the reindeer for his customer.
4: Took uh, half an hour or something, it was butchered up, like you saw here in the photo. And And by the time
0: he was finished, he and his team were even hungrier and faced a 20 kilometer walk back to the main camp, where they needed to head immediately so the meat wouldn't spoil. Now there was no time to hunt a rabbit, skin it, and cook it. But then he remembered something he had heard from other Danish hunters about one of the classic fast Greenlandic survival foods.
4: And then I remembered how the Greenlandic does when they eat food out there. They're eating uh, the stomach soup, the green soup in the stomach, and that's from the, the mosses uh, the green deer eats. And, and uh, it's very healthy and very, to call it, uh, a lot of vitamins, uh, mints in it and, and so on. So, so.
0: so he cuts out the rumen and...
4: Well, I eat it, took it up in my hand, like that, and like that, straight out of the organ. Amazing. Still hot. Still hot. Uh, a bit bitter. Uh, not tasting bad. I guess if I had had a couple of spoonfuls of sugar, it would have uh, helped me a lot <laughs> to swallow. <laughs> but <laughs> I had to. I had.
0: To. He also ate some of the tenderloin raw and warm.
4: That was really tasty. <laughs> oh, well, oil. It, it was really tasty.
0: Feeling replenished, they set off back toward the camp with the antlers and the meat, 52 kilos in total.
4: I was that tired. So I just slipped out the meat and then I took two glasses of whiskey and I fell asleep. Straight. <laughs> <laughs> I was that tired. i no kidding. Well, actually, there was.
0: Uh... I asked him if he had an upset stomach later and he said no. It is said that hunger makes the best sauce. But maybe hunger does more than that. Maybe, over time and with necessity, it defines what we consider edible. If Jesper hadn't been so hungry, it probably would have taken more than a couple spoonfuls of sugar to make the green soup seem like a good meal idea. But in that moment, needing sustenance, he enjoyed it and was nourished. So, is it simply need that defines survival food?
1: If you, if you want to look deep in the history, processing food in general is a way to create survival thing, you know? Imagine like aging cheese, so making actually from the milk creating the cheese is a way to preserve food, is a way to survive and Absolutely. and that is is something that is related to the evolution of and like related to the evolution of and, and the history of the humanity and the survival food actually is not easy yeah. no oh, yeah. survival food is not something that i mean you are dying and you need to grab something you know survival food is something that is extremely related with skills and capacity and uh, showing uh, how much. Um the man uh, have developed his, uh, like the, the skills to survive or like be able to be part of uh, a specific uh, um, uh, like ecosystem, and that's, that's a kind of really beautiful uh, part of the history of like survival food. This is not something that we are going to end in three months, you know? This is something that I want to really be clear. This is something that is a kind of really interesting project, uh, but is not a project that will be closed in three months.
0: As weeks turned into months at the lab, the rumen biomimicry project became less and less a technical project, and more a symbol, for the conundrum of turning an ephemeral, kind of in-the-field food experience into a dish in the kitchen. We both had many ideas to mimic the rumen's remarkable fermentation capabilities in the lab, ideas which would require some hard-to-find materials, expert advice, many trials, and time we didn't have. Yet the biggest hurdle we kept bumping into was this concept of survival food. As Roberto says, processing food is a way of ensuring survival. So does that mean that all of the foods we eat on the planet are survival foods? and that some simply gravitate closer to the cores of food traditions, while others, for whatever reasons, remain at or just beyond their periphery. If so, I can't help but wonder at the survival origins of some of the stronger flavors in various food traditions. The Nordic countries, of course, have their share of these flavors. Often there are fermented fish products like Icelandic halkarth, fermented shark, lütfisk, Norwegian lye-preserved fish, and surströmming, Swedish fermented herring. This is the sound of a surströmming's hryva, one of the many ways Swedes celebrate Midsummer's Day around June 21st. The hryva typically happens in northern Sweden, where the preserved fish has its geographic roots, and the Norlanders celebrate the stinky fish with much pomp and circumstance, and schnapps. I found myself at one while I was in Saltilukta staying with Lila, and it seemed imperative that I experience this deeply loved, and to me, vile-smelling food. In the long hall at the Salto Saltolucta tourist station, bulging tins of the fish were burst by waiters, releasing wafts of rotten eggs, rancid butter, and pungent, nostril-filling ammonia into the room. I did manage to eat some, but no amount of the requisite thin bread, red onion, and creme fraiche could mask the taste. This got me wondering, how does an entire geographic area of people cherish this strong flavor at the core of their food tradition? Well, I was very happy to keep it to my periphery. Perhaps it has something to do with repetition, accepting the flavor because it's what you have, eating it repeatedly, adapting to it, and then not being able to live without it, and perhaps even engaging in developing these now desired qualities further. When I had spoken to Lila about the reindeer rumens, she mentioned another food made from the stuff inside of animal organs, this time of the crops and perhaps even intestines of rock ptarmigans. The way she talked about it, about preparing it, eating it, and serving it to her guests, made it clear that this might be a food that had gravitated closer to the center of Lila's food tradition.
2: And I also take from the intest of the birds, and especially ptarmigans, and I mix it together with the creme fraiche, and so you produce it for when I make something nice, uh, Dishes mm-hmm. and the people said, Oh, it tastes very nice. What is that? But I never told what it was. When they have eaten, I could throw it and tell it so they know. Because when you take from the uh, ptarmigans, it could many times take in the autumn berries mm-hmm. and a uh, lot of uh, flower taste because they eat it that. And in the winter, it tastes like uh, very strong birch because they eat it the buds and uh, so it was different tastes.
0: I had to realize that if I wanted to turn the green soup into a food, whether an everyday one or a gastronomic product, there was much more to it than just making a tasty version of it. I would have to ask myself about the value and significance of even doing such a thing.
1: I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, how much we can try to bring into a more ordinary diet. Something that is defined uh, a survival food. You don't have to pretend the people eating like reindeer so much uh, uh, moss. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not something that is is a is a completely way different way than like protecting. You know, it's like uh, because that is is a kind of really bad way to create the like reserves. You know, it's like Mm, you don't have to see people. Okay, no, you should still eating that food. Exactly. Yeah. No. Because that's a kind of really wrong approach. But uh, I think it's really important uh, at least recognize that that, that's something is is a kind of important uh, know-how that someone someone have to take the responsibility to keeping alive in, I don't know.
0: As our landscapes of food choice and availability rapidly change, foods of the even recent past take on different meanings. As academics, chefs, and gastronomers, We walk a line between being both documenters and generators of cultural food knowledge, roles that come with certain responsibility. To explore something like green soup in a gastronomic setting is to change it. And that's fine. We do not need to fight to keep things the same. The same as what, even. But we do need to be aware of what happens when we take a food from one context and put it in another. It becomes, in some sense, a different food. The challenge is to figure out how different. This is what, I think, Roberto means when he says,
1: I'm, I'm a little bit worried about uh, connect uh, the concept of um, survival food to something that is weird for many of right. the people that maybe can uh, uh, like uh, hear about this uh, podcast, you know?
0: Yeah. He means that food should make sense. And the green soup certainly made sense to Jesper out in the fields and to Sami herders during the Second World War. And as tempting as it is for an outsider to romanticize the context from which emerges any traditional food, perhaps we would do better to remember that whatever separates survival and culinary tradition is less a line than a Mobius strip of causality. So what's next for the rumen biomimicry project? Who knows? If you're looking to do a PhD in microbiology and want to spend a lot of time with cud-chewing animals, I'd suggest you go for it. There's always more to explore. For this episode, I'd like to thank our friend, Hunter Jesper Schuda, for his story. Isla Speak for her teachings on Sámi foods, which inspired the episode. And a huge thanks to our chef, Roberto Flore, for his guidance and insights in and outside of the kitchen. Thanks also to Nuna Kapion at KU, And to the wonderful Sarah Landvik, who, although she didn't end up in the piece, filled us in on the glorious process that is bacterial and fungal enzyme creation. Music in this episode from bensound.org, and Alexander Navarro and Massimo Ruberti, And sounds from freesound.org. Recording done at CQW in Winnipeg, Canada. And this episode of Nordic Food Lab Radio was produced by me, Anna Sigurther. And hey, just a note. This is the last episode of Season 2. And I just wanted to say a big personal thanks to the team at NFL and to you for listening. It's been such a pleasure to share these stories with you.